Want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Today's part two of our three-part interview with one of Australia's most high-profile and experienced company directors. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. Hello, Michael. Our special guest for this three-part interview is John Poynton, AO. As we discussed at length in our last episode, John was, until recently, a director of Crown Resorts. John has served and continues to serve on the boards of a number of Australian-listed companies, not-for-profit institutions and federal government boards, including as a current member of the Board of Guardians for the Future Fund. Last time, he spoke very candidly about his departure from Crown and about the role of personalities on boards. This time, we're going to look at what makes an effective board and how the communication should flow between the chair, the directors and the executive team. John Poynton, welcome to Three Peaks Leadership. Hi, Michael. We're going to cover a few topics today, but I'm hoping you might indulge us at the beginning and help me with a bit of a 101 on the board and really how the board works, how the relationship is established between the board and the executive team and how that that information flows to basically allow a company to function effectively. I was told recently uh, an analogy that a, a good board is like a referee in a game of footy, that if, if you get to the end of the game, that you should not even really know that the referee was even there in the first place because they've done their job quietly, effectively, and just made sure that the focus stayed where it should be. What does a what does a, a successful board look like to you? Yeah, well, I think part of what you're alluding to there is <clears throat> is trust and very strong <clears throat> and, and fully functioning relationship between the the members of the board, who after all are non executives, are not day to day involved in the business and management. <clears throat> and if you get good trust, and and that starts really between the chair and the CEO, <clears throat> and then the rest of the members of the board <clears throat> get on well with them, each other, <clears throat> respect the chair, and take guidance from the chair in the sense about just how to how much to be involved in the interactions with management. Um, you get a very effective um, and, and fully functioning company, really. So uh, let's look at the at the information flow between the the board and and the executive team how much information should there be going between them and how does that actually work in a practical sense? <coughs> well, that, that's actually becoming more sharply in focus <coughs> these days and particularly, you know, when you've seen things like money laundering at the banks and, <coughs> and more recently the issues around Crown and, you know, even things like uh, the whole Christine Holgate issue at Australia Post, there's a lot of after-the-fact discussion and if you like analysis about just how much information the board did have, the board should have had, how much management should have shared with the board. <clears throat> and the problem is that it's very easy after the fact to say, well, management should have given the board more information, but it doesn't take long for it to turn from someone being a non-exec 
and, and a part-time, you know, overseer, if you like, of the company to someone who's then required to be effectively like management and know everything about everything, which is not possible. We might take one step back and and get into almost some role definition. What is the role of a director? Well, the role of the director is essentially to oversee the performance of management um, to the best outcome for all the shareholders. So they're, they're always acting in the company's interest and therefore, by definition, the shareholders' interests. And that can be incredibly broad. That can be financial. That can be regulatory. It can be, you know, essentially compliance. It can be uh, environmental. There's lots and lots of areas that directors are, in fact, legally required to be responsible for. Obviously, by definition, though, you have to delegate a lot of the day-to-day, in fact, most of it, to management because you can't literally be, you know, over everything. And that's where the whole trust issue comes and that's where the the correct balance of, of just the right amount of information, which will vary over time, that needs to flow from management to the board for them to essentially execute and essentially um, be effective. So, sorry, if I may, just the, the role of the CEO in that flow of information, the senior leadership reporting to the CEO and then the CEO reports out to the board. And John, you and I have had a number of conversations about that. You mentioned earlier the, the relationship between the, the chair and the CEO. Mm. Uh, I know from personal experience how, how important yeah. Yeah, that indeed. is. But perhaps we can just dig a bit deeper into that. As a, as a chair, what are you expecting from your CEO? Well, I mean, apart from performance and, and delivery of total shareholder return, uh, essentially that you could argue no surprises. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want to be surprised by something that you weren't aware of that they'd kept from you. Um, I guess we should have started by saying we're assuming a steady state organisation. We're not talking about a startup, which is where a board's been put together, yeah. um, you know, dependent upon, you know, the, the attributes required and the expertise required. If we're just talking about walking into an operating organisation that has a board of directors, has CEO and the rest of the management, then essentially to a degree when you come onto a board, you've been delivered a fait accompli. You know, it is what it is. And I've been involved in a few more not-for-profit organisations where I've come in as chair after straight away or after a period where, you know, there has actually been a lack of effectiveness, if you like, that yeah. uh, in one instance in a not-for-profit, the CEO had inverted the governance pyramid and he was the boss and there was a, a board or a council and he essentially ran the place like it was his fiefdom. And there was a relatively weak chair and a relatively weak board. And so that person pretty much did what they wanted to do. Right. And, and that wasn't the best for the organisation, you know, even though he thought it was. And do you see that happening more when the CEO has been in place for a, a long time? Uh, that that definitely, when everyone's been in place for a long time, and I've been on boards for probably longer than best practice would suggest, and you do find over time a familiarity. You do find a camaraderie, a kind of personal relationship, you know, sometimes even friendship develops between people, which is natural and tribal. <clears throat> and that can cause you and cause one to be less questioning, even if there's nothing sinister going on, you know, just that, oh, well, I'll take that as red kind of thing, whereas you might have dug in a bit deeper. So that's why people believe, and I agree, that it's good to have 
time limits or tenure limits, if you like, you know, 10 years or something like that, uh, where most people would have given all they were going to give by 10 years, whether they're management or a board, but it allows for new ideas to come in and a, a resetting, you know, not in one go, but a resetting of that, that whole relationship, non-exec-exec. I'm interested as well in the dynamics of the board and particularly where, let's use that example of a board that's been in place for a long time. There, there is that risk of, of falling into a very comfortable kind of um, pattern. If you have someone new coming in, uh, how difficult is it for one person on the board to be a, a dissenting <clears throat> voice? Yeah, that is a very good question and is an issue a lot. So if let's start with staying with Exco and it's been going for some time and it's a significant listed company and it's got maybe seven or eight people on the board and the chair. Over time, obviously, the, the attributes one requires on a board changes, but also there's a lot of pressure, satisfy your ESG targets, you know, gender diversity, all that sort of stuff. So it really does come down to the chair's judgment about what the best mix of, you know, expertise and personalities is and experience on a board. And so when vacancies occur, there's generally a committee, a nominations committee, but there should be a collegiate approach, not just the chair determining uh, what the attributes we're looking for might be. And then there should that subcommittee of, of the board should be involved in the recruiting process, the interview process for directors, and and it's it's healthy, you know, because you get different views. Another uh, definition in terms of the independent director: How does the role of an independent director vary from the role of a director who is representing? Well, somebody we, on we that could, board. We could talk for a long time about this because. There's a cynical view and one that, you know, I've seen play out. Um, so therefore, to a degree, I agree with it that once someone actually requires or, or relies upon the income that comes from their board fees, whether it's one individual board or, or number, such that, you know, if those, if that income fell away and might be a particularly large board where they're getting, you know, two or 300k, in in director fees, that if in fact they were not on that board, that income loss would actually be material. Therefore, it causes people to potentially be or really be less independent because they're worried that the chair or someone else might say, well, you're not going to get you know, renewed, if you like, or or we're not going to put you up for reappointment. So that director is not independent. So it isn't just black and white about whether someone's been appointed by a shareholder with a large shareholding, you know, 20, 30, 40%. It's more about whether they actually act independently and they do call out things that perhaps, you know, might be uncomfortable to call out. And, and I've been involved with boards where there's been a, a founder shareholder with a large holding, and I've made it clear to them that I'm not going to act in their interest. It's in for everyone's interest yeah. versus, you know, situations where someone who might not have a lot of skin in the game actually acts in a way that shows you that they're actually not truly independent. So it's a very grey area. Yeah. So going back to, uh, if, we, if we may, where the CEO sits in all of this, because they're, after all, to your point about, their remuneration being a large part of their net worth or meeting their bills, they're very keen not to get axed. They mm. are a director. They do need to act in the interest, as you say, mm. of all, all shareholders. They're trying to pull together management and the chairman's trying to pull together the board. Indeed. So I guess the question is, 
as a as a chair looking for a CEO, mm. what personal attributes do you look for? Yeah. Well, I think you start with, again, the idea that um, <clears throat> there's got to be cultural fit, there's got to be, you know, uh, competence and all those sort of things. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> the board will have or will do as soon as the, the CEO is appointed a strategic review so that, you know, once a year everyone's understanding what the, the you know, the mission, the strategic direction of the company is. And management needs to be part of that and develop that, you know, internally in the management team and then bring that to a, probably a, a board retreat where everyone signs off and away we go. So <clears throat> you should already have a framework where everyone understands what they're all there for. Then it's going to be about <clears throat> that person's ability to execute. And I've worked with a number of different CEOs, each of whom have had different personalities. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you, you really want passion, you want above average levels of energy, and you want someone who's absolutely committed to delivering outcomes for the shareholders um, and who in this quite complex time of rapid change is not dogmatic that they're actually open to new ideas and to explore not just things that might tangibly result in shareholder return, but actually position the company in a way where it has respect in the investment and broader community. Yeah. That That's actually quite subtle, but I'm seeing that in a company I'm involved in in the oil and gas space, where there's a young CEO who is totally moving the company in a direction that I think is appropriate for this time. You know, these, these times of when carbon sort of been, um, vilified. Yes. And you were involved in, obviously in their, in their appointment. Mm. Was there anything that stuck out to mm. you? Well, it, it's, it's, it's a particularly sort of unusual circumstance, the company strike energy because the current chair then pretty much just said, look, you know, I'm done. Here's, you can have the chair. And at the same time, I had identified this very young in his early 30s CEO ex shell. And he was ex-military as well as ex-shell, had a lot of discipline, but a lot of energy and didn't really want to be in a large company. He wanted to try his chances in a smaller entrepreneurial company. And uh, so that that energy was infectious. He was very, very enthusiastic, and then technically very good and then a great communicator. And so we've all evolved together over the last four years on this journey. But but the probably the key thing at that time was his youth, when I was in my 30s, I was handed the reins of an investment bank stockbroking company my father had started. And I remember thinking at the time that was a pretty brave call, you know, from the older people who'd been running it up until then. But I was always grateful that I'd been given a chance at a young age and I try and do that. <clears throat> so Stu's now in his mid-late 30s but still quite young. But backing younger people and, and giving them cover, mentoring them, but also, you know, letting them have their head, I think is one of the things I've noticed has been very satisfying. Right. So, again, the chair's role as a mentor. Mm. We talk a lot during the course of these podcasts about how lonely it is for a CEO. Mm. And, and one of the great things about interviewing you for the book was how you were taking your CEO charges, I guess, and mentoring, being, mm. a, being the I guess, the sounding board before things went to the board. It goes with the territory. And the chair themselves obviously are 
you know, obligated in my view to mentor their fellow board members. Now, some might be older, some might be younger, some come from different parts, but it's this iterative journey about learning. You know, we're all, we're all, if we're up for it, um, able to learn something from anyone. Yes. And, and so you've got to have that attitude. And so, sure, some people might be less experienced on boards than others, but, but, you know, um, just made an appointment to, to another company that of a very seasoned female executive. This person's run large divisions and been involved with large corporations, but has an energy and a passion about this relatively smaller company that, you know, I'm learning from as well. You know, it can teach me things technically. Um, so I think that the theme through this is mutual respect. Yes. You know, functioning boards respect each other. They don't let and a chair doesn't let one party dominate, but equally encourages the quieter ones to actually speak, share their views, be brave, you know, come up with ideas that might be not conventional and just toss them around in a, in a mutually re- sort of respectful place and way. And a lot of people don't, you know, some boards can be very, very hierarchical yeah. and, and they're not boards you want to be on. No. And what you've just said actually sparked a thought about groupthink. Mm. or the lack of. Mm. So basically, again, as a chair and a selection committee for directors, you've got to find people, as you said before, who have similar values but different ways of thinking. Mm. I, I, One of the most satisfying appointments I've made as chair, I chaired the council of the school, and it came time when the previous or the, the, the incumbent had been there for the coming CEO, principal, whatever, had been there for a long time. And so it's a, it's probably the most important decision uh, the council of a school can make, obviously, because you get it right and it's terrific. If you get it wrong, it affects everybody, and we all know that. Everybody's invested in their child's school. So anyway, I um, I don't know how it really happened. We, we certainly had a very good headhunter working for us, but the school, which is a boys' school, was co-located with a girls' school next door with a fantastic principal. And I, in some way, I don't know why, asked the principal of the girls' school to be on the selection committee for our new principal. Well, it was just extraordinary because she knew all the questions to ask um, because she'd been asked them herself. And she was able to kind of pick out the nuances of, you know, what we really needed and in the end, we made a decision that's turned out to be really, really good. I'm no longer involved. But okay. it was one of those things where coming out of left field, yes. you know, having having someone who had a different perspective um, just worked out really well. And again, so don't be afraid to ask other people about, you know, and particularly if you're looking at a, a, a director that you may not know that well. Well, someone will. Yes. And, and you do hear, you talk about group think, you also hear about the usual suspects where there's a group of people that get tapped on the shoulder to be directors uh, regularly um, without necessarily, dare I say, the right amount of DD about how they might have performed in some of their other gigs, whether it's an exec gig or a non-exec one. And that can be a problem. That's part two of our special three-part interview with John Poynton AO, one of Australia's most experienced and high-profile company directors and corporate advisors. Next time on Three Peaks Leadership, Lev and I will be talking more with John about culture, the culture of the board, the culture of the company, and the link between the two. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow on the podcast so it lands in your playlist as soon as it's released. And if you haven't already, pick up your copy of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond, from Booktopia, from Dimmicks, from Amazon, basically anywhere that sells books online. 
I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Philip Levinson.